I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Joan Gibbs, ecologist. Welcome, Joan. Thank you, Adrian and Steve. It's so great to be here in your beautiful garden. Thank you for being here. Um, now, I've known about you for a long time, Joan, and we've met a few times along the way. And I've been really keen to have you on the show because you're a, not only a grassland ecologist, but you're also a fire ecologist. Thank you. There's so much that could be said about these things from personal experience as well as from academic experience. I taught fire ecology at UniSA for 36 years. And I would say... Now I'm a restoration ecologist. What does that mean? That means we have to make up for the ecological debt that the modern society has created on the earth, and we are in the decade of restoration, ecosystem restoration, according to the United Nations, and we're two years into it, and I think people haven't got the message yet. Well, do you know what? I love wildlife and nature and ecology, and I didn't know that. So I'm one of those people. Yes, well, uh, there are a lot of uh, things that we need to make up for. Um, So United Nations has 17 sustainability goals, and I think the environment is number 15 on the scale. Okay. It's pretty way down the list. It's It's pretty low. First is uh, people, making people happy. Number two is giving them enough food. Number three is... That's pretty anthropocentric. Yeah, totally. Uh, And the theory, the thinking is that if we don't get people aware of sustainability, we'll run out of food, water, etc., etc. We'll run out of things for ourselves uh, because we're not living sustainably. We're using four and a half Earths every year. So um, uh, the only way out of it is to restore ecosystems, and I think it is taking a massive shift in thinking. And our thinking is the basis for our decisions. So I will talk for about five minutes about how bad everything is. Okay. <laughs> and then the rest of it hopefully will be about what we can do about it and what people are doing because there's a lot of good things going on. So uh, the bad thing is that our philosophy around the world, as I heard from my students last week, uh, yeah, where's the money going to come from for our jobs in the environment? Oh, you know, so everyone is working for money because money is our value system or it holds our value system uh, and we all pay taxes to the government so that the government does the things that we can't do individually. And so if the government is not looking after the environment as it's not properly, then it's up to everyone to do it. So every man, woman, and child needs to be out there growing things and putting back whole ecosystems. So that's where I want to end up, saying what ecosystem science is and how everyone can become part of an ecosystem and feel happier. Because I think that's where true happiness is in this euphoria that we get. And there are a number of reasons for that. The fastest disappearing resource on Earth is... The ecosystem? Which part of it? Soil. Yes. There we go. Without the soil, we don't get endorphins. And there has been papers and research done on the benefits that you get from gardening... And they have found pheromones produced by the microorganisms in the soil that make us feel happy. This is why people do gardening. Is that right? Yeah. That's it's been proven, yeah, you know. Wow. And so <clears throat> little old ladies are the happiest people on earth. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, happiness is the cure for cancer. It's the cure for depression. It's the cure for everything. 
Okay, so the uh, the situation is this, that 97% um, of biodiversity is in the first top meter, half meter of soil. And because people are not caring for soil properly, we're using it as a growth medium to overproduce crops and taking minerals out and never putting anything back. There are some basic fundamental principles of ecosystem science is that if you take more out of the ecosystem than you put back, it's going to be finite. So, uh, and what is that ratio of putting back to taking out? What do you think it would be? You have to put back more than you take out because if things change or there's a disaster or a bushfire, Anything, there's nothing to, the, then the system just degrades, degrades, degrades. So this is where we are. We're on the slope downward to a crash. And if you heard last week the uh, statement from the United Nations is that global warming is uh, going so fast now, it's speeding up. We've really got till 2030 to turn around at warlike speed <laughs> the you know, carbon sequestration. And of course, most of that is in the top 10 centimeters of soil with all this biodiversity and microorganisms, which is where our happiness lies, and we don't know it. Most people don't. How do we do that? Right. So the solutions and not what people think. So the, the thinking at the moment is that, oh, we've got, we've got the, uh, the Green Industries essay which is for a circular economy. And people hear the word economy and they think, oh yeah, we'll get the economy working for the environment. So they paid $300,000 for a plastic granulator. They paid half a million dollars for refrigerators, for food waste, so we can recycle food. And so as long as re the three R's are in it, reduce, reuse, and recycle, we think we'll be okay. The government's doing it. That's not even close. Is that putting back soil? Mm. No. We won't have enough air to breathe, or the, the CO2 oxygen ratio is going to be upset, and the consequences that, of that are complicated and far-reaching. So in order to uh, get the soil back, so the solutions, according to the United Nations report, were, number one, uh, soil organic matter, returning... SOM, soil organic matter, you know, so if you think of that. So this means something like organic farming, and a research group in Switzerland produced uh, some research on organic farming versus conventional farming, and they're equally productive. They can be equally productive, but it takes about 10 years to get an organic farm going. You know, so people need to think more than one fiscal year financially, economically, you have to think long-term, think about children, grandchildren, and what kind of world they're going to live in. Not, oh, how can I get to the bank today? And how can I increase my bank account today? You know, short-term boom bust. So we're on this track with this thinking about, oh, our, our company, uh, oh, I shouldn't say the company's name, should I? <laughs> the companies register themselves as uh, green ticks. Uh, it was the ERF, this uh, Environmental Rehabilitation Fund. They all subscribe to that so they get a green tick and they can carry on polluting or, you know, ruining the economy. Is that called greenwashing? <laughs> yes, how did you know? Yeah. Someone told me. <laughs> I think Dion told me, one of your students. Yeah, yeah Dion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of things, you know, companies say, oh, well, Oh, we put all of our workers out in the field one day a year to plant 100 trees. Is that going to do it? Maybe the revolution isn't here yet. People are still thinking about, oh, I'll plant a tree and then I'll be all right. It'll compensate for my 22 tons of CO2 per year. But equally, like that's better than 20 years ago what companies were doing, which was nothing. So we, we are getting steps forward though surely i know you're saying like it needs to be way more Faster. blah 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 <laughs> but for us to actually knock the small amount that's being done now is okay. probably a bit <laughs> oh when i when i taught uh, uh, restoration ecology i said 
do not knock anyone who's planting a tree. (laughs) (laughs) And we do not decry any effort because the, who was it said, Frank Sinatra? No, first you have to uh, get them thinking this way and then they do it, you know. You, You see... You see before you do, and then you do what you do. Dooby dooby do. Frank Sinatra. <laughs> he ran out of words at the end. Be, <laughs> to be is to do. To do is to be. Anyway, so uh, how do we get people doing the restoration? So according to the United Nations report, number one is soil organic matter. However you can do it get organic matter back into the soil. It's not, I, I don't believe in just spraying weeds mm. because that's putting toxins in the soil. It kills the microorganisms. And then you don't have the happy stuff coming out of the soil. So you want to develop that happy biodiversity and organic matter in the top layers of soil. The second way of getting the soil back and the save the world is mentioned in Merlin Sheldrake's book, Entangled Life, how fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. If you read this book, you'll be freaked out, and you will never live the same way again. So, and so one of his mentors, and my mentors, uh, Paul Stamets, as so many people are, he said, six ways fungi can save the world. So fungi is answer number two. So fungi can uh, make these incredible networks under the surface of the soil, and they can make everything okay. They're decontaminating. Okay, so the six ways that fungi can save the world. Fungi will decontaminate toxic soils. Uh, Fungi will uh, filter toxic uh, toxins out of water. Uh, Fungi uh, will create plant growth. Uh, fungi will regulate the microorganisms in the soil. Uh, fungi can, oh, you can make leather out of fungi. People wear leather coats made from fungi, and fungi can be made into, to grow into these forms to make cardboard boxes. And so everything fungal can replace wasteful things like forestry and the misuse of water. Thirdly is biochar. So we did some research on native grass restoration and using biochar to stimulate grass uh, restoration. And so we could, uh, in the laboratory or in the greenhouse, we could increase significantly increase the growth of the native grasses uh, using biochar. What's biochar? Biochar. Oh, it's like charcoal. Uh, And biochar is just a word. It's like sustainability. If biochar is the answer to everything, (laughs) it would be a nice, a simple answer, but it's not that simple because everybody's biochar is different. And so you can you can use waste material from agriculture to create biochar. So it's it's burned waste without oxygen. So you get charcoal bits, and uh, there's some theories about what it does. So the three things that I'm worried about are number one, soil; mm-hmm. number two, water; uh, and number three is the, the forests and the animals and the wildlife, the natural world. And so people do not know how to use water correctly. Uh, South Australia is the driest state and the driest continent of the world. And people use water like they live in Europe. And no one respects water. We had a ceremony done by the native people from the desert in the western U.S. They came over here to the Kurong. And at Camp Kurong, they did this water ceremony, which blows your mind because you realize... Water is sacred. In South Australia, we should be treating water as if it were a sacred Mm. commodity. Yeah, we are not living on what the earth provides. We're living on the excess of whatever we can scan. When you talked about farmers or or, um, 
agriculture depleting the soil and not putting back. But it's possible to have an organic farm, but it might take 10 years for that farm to be productive. Mm -hmm. Do you think we need to have some incentives? Because I think when people go to the organic section of the supermarket, it's small and everything costs three times the amount and you, and you go, oh. <laughs> but if there are some maybe some incentives, perhaps if, if it was the same price, people would go, I'm doing it, you know, and maybe some kind of incentive to get it to shift over. That's right. Then everyone would go for organic if it were the same price, right? <laughs> and so the only people that buy it are the ones who've got cancer and don't need the toxins and or who are philosophically motivated. Uh, but there is a great movement, which you're probably alluding to, is the regenerative agriculture sector. You've no, but I'd love to hear more about it. Oh, I wish I knew more about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm only an ecologist. I'm just talking only about how, 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 the, how the whole ecosystem works. Yeah. Uh, and Anyway, if we're going to be part of the ecosystem as humans on the earth, we need to be regenerative. We need to regenerate, uh, putting back more than we take out. So I, I'd say if we take out one-third of resources... We need to put back two-thirds against, you know, drought, famine, world chaos, all of that, so that the kids will live on. So is that like how at Bolivar here in Adelaide we recycle at, at what's that? It's that primary, secondary, tertiary sort of cleaning of our feces, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sewerage and things. Yeah, and that nutrients. Nutrients, there we go. And that water then gets treated to a point where it can be used to water crops in uh, northern Adelaide. Is that that's an example of putting back nutrients? That is an example of uh, the circular economy. Okay. Uh, just recovering something of what you've wasted. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I believe in trickle filters. They produce water that's cleaner than the water that comes in off of the land, yeah. And it's drinkable. And so we're gr they're growing lettuce out at uh, Two Wells on that Boulevard Recycled Water. Yeah, so recycling is a, a step in the right direction, and it's like compensating for uh, producing less waste, but we're still inundated in mountains of waste. I think recycling slows down the rate of collapse of ecosystems. I mean, it just reduces the burden of waste. But it's not it, preventing it's, it. It's not preventing it, yeah. yeah. So if people don't reduce... Got to go to the point source, which is point source soil. And, 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 it, and it's changing people's attitudes, isn't it? It's changing people's belief systems. Does it often come down to the bottom line, though? The dollar? Yeah. Well, that's what all of this uh, green infrastructure and the what they call it, uh, green industries, they say, is, is about, you know, trying, trying to make it pay to reduce the speed at which everything is degrading. <laughs> but it's, it's just that, I mean, we're on a trajectory, and how steep that is, uh, if we do nothing, it's going to be really fast and really steep. In fact, that's what United Nations is saying, that it's accelerating. It's not slowing down. And so if we... Whatever we do might reduce the rate at which we're collapsing. So if we can just maintain, I mean, we're not even maintaining a level rate of degradation. No, I mean, what did we hear? There's only so many seasons left of soil on the earth. I can't remember what it was, 40, 40 years left of topsoil. Maybe maybe I had I that 10 years 60, ago. 60. Yeah. 60, so it might be 50 now. I don't even know. But when, when we did that podcast, I know uh, a farming family that, that kind of, it's where you've got to be careful with, with, with you know, sometimes, because I know a farming family who has said, well, you know, they grow a crop and then grow a crop and let it die into the ground to refeed and then grow a crop to, you know. That's so, regenerative. So, yeah, yeah, so people are already doing that. And that, they said, like, their family has been doing that for 20 or 30 years because otherwise they would have run out of soil by now and they'd yeah, be out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, all of these things are starting to be done, and more so now. It's kind of, I don't know, it's like, it's me sitting here, this is just me, when you sit here and we say, like, you know, if we haven't sorted this out by 2030, we're screwed, or in 30 years' time, or this or that, and you kind of, 
I, I worry about that full-on message. I get it. We've got to be strict with this and say, this is serious, blah, blah, blah. But there are so many humans out there, millions of them that are going to go, oh, well, we're screwed then. Well, this is it. Why, why bother? You know, so- and so, do you know the World Resources Institute? It was in the Twin Towers. <laughs> yeah. <Bugger>. And, <laughs> and so, so this came, it started about the time of... Uh, the Brundtland Agreement in Switzerland uh, to define sustainability. You know, so this was in the late 70s, early 80s. The Brundtland Bulletin was about uh, getting world cooperation to define what sustainability is going to be if we're going to sustain life on Earth. And that became, oh, what did that become? Sustainability, uh, United Nations, UNE. Uh, the big um, the Rio conference you know sustainability ecological sustainability principles is where that started and so uh, a guy named Lester Brown who's written a series of books about this uh, he started he was engaged by the United States government to set up the World Resources Institute to report back to the government on how we're going <laughs> Are, are we on an even keel? Can we sustain ourselves the way we're going? Is it down or are, can we improve and what should we do? So his first book was Plan B because we'd already passed Plan A for recovering what we'd done. And a lot of people in industries especially didn't like hearing this, uh, that the, the Plan B has to be bigger and greater because Plan A didn't work. Uh, trying to make everything economically viable to take care of the earth. <laughs> so he wrote, and then he wrote another book, Plan, Plan B 3.0. And he said, uh, we've got until October. This was 1996, he said. We've got until October to turn the world around and get restoration happening. And, uh, and that was my inspiration, actually, to start being a restoration ecologist. And, and then October 1996 came and went. Nothing changed. And so the next book was Full Earth, Empty Plates. Oh, no, the, that was after. The first was World on the Edge. And he asked his kids uh, who were teenagers, and they said, he said, do you see the direction we're going is towards the cliff? And the picture on the front of his book was a city on the edge of a cliff, and the cliff's crumbling away, and the buildings are falling down into the abyss. And he said to the kids, so if, we're, if you're speeding towards the cliff in a car, and you know the cliff is there, you know how far away it is, uh, and you're coming close to the edge, what are you going to do? You're going to turn to the left, you're going to turn to the right, avoid going over the cliff, you're going to step on the brakes all you can, as hard as you can. The kids all said, no, nah, we're going to step on the accelerator and just have a good time. <laughs> Thelma and Louise. That is the big <laughs> worry with sometimes how this is put across. We, we Don't get me wrong, we all want to say, sort yourselves out, everyone. Do this, do that, and that's it. Bottom line, it's law now. <laughs> do it, but no. so many people are going to rebel against it and go, no, I'm not doing that then. Okay, so um, and it's a scary thing. Like we always say, government, government needs to be on board more than they are. Yeah, yeah. But there's so many people out there that are so anti-government that if the government got on board, they'd probably go, whoa, I'm having nothing to it do with that. Then there's something wrong. involved here. It's the wrong government. It's the wrong government. Oh Especially in Australia, <laughs> it's so. We, we hate our government in Australia. Oh, it's so in difficult. Power. Well, that should be the obvious that we got the wrong government. So maybe if the Greens get in, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Your opinions. Yeah. <laughs> your opinion. yeah, yeah. I'll um, be shot for it later. But the Greens are still going to follow another party. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's all, you know, and encouraged by the money and that power of the dollar. So, uh, to me, the answer is grasslands. Okay. Grassland ecology is the solution because we can get soil organic matter we can get the endorphins 
We can get happiness, we can get medicines, we can get food, all we need from grasslands. So I'm telling everyone, plant your tree, but for every tree, you've got to have a million grass plants. So, yeah, so you're on about big fields of grasses, edible grasses, things like that? or Think of it. But only, but I, only, I only ask because we've got a lot of <laughs> listeners who we've spent the last three or four years telling them, like, have some native plants in your back garden that are going to dig all of those up now and lay a lawn. Oh, no. (laughs) I want to be sure what you're saying. (laughs) Okay. Okay. There's a bigger picture here. Uh, Right. So, and I get philosophical at this stage and I say, we, our species is here because of grasses. The grass family, Graminii or Poaceae, is the most important to us on the face of the earth. And grasses evolved, you know, like 20 million years ago, and humans then followed the grasses. And if you read, um, what's his name, Brown Pollen, uh, The Botany of Desire, the grasses love us and want us to be happy. So, That's very philosophical. No, they produce pheromones that make us happy. And if Grasses we, do. It's the sod, it's the soil, it's these endorphins in the soil that are like hormone mimics for us. And if you, uh, if you kill the soil, we just want to kill each other. We don't have any softening. You know, the, the savage animal comes out and we just want to have wars, you know. This is what's wrong with the Middle East. They've lost all their topsoil. The Sahara Desert was once in... A, tropical rainforest and it's been created by humans two-thirds of the world's deserts are human made and it all comes with disrespecting the soil doesn't the sahara fluctuate every 20,000 years to grassland to desert grassland to desert 20,000 years oh you mean with the ice age Uh, i'm not sure what the mechanism is that makes it change but that's something that I heard so about five to seven thousand years ago it was a grassland and you had that big lake mega lake Chad the biggest lake mm-hmm. on the planet that's now just I don't know salt lake whatever that is I don't know yeah there's a lot of really good stories I bet you Egypt they built all those py- we said this before I bet when they built the pyramids it wasn't a desert they had resources I bet it was, was lovely yeah yeah well and the, <laughs> that's right the grasslands fed all of those poor Egyptians that had to build the pyramids you know the Greeks mm. made them do it. Anyway, so humans evolved with the grasses. Wheat, oats, barley, rye. Oh, rye was the first cultivated crop. And then we became farmers, and then we overproduced, you know. And in the Americas, it was corn. You know, they overproduced corn, and uh, they did amazing things. Uh, maize. <laughs> with corn, <laughs> yeah, maize. And... Uh, and it all went terribly bad, you know, if you watch Apocalypto, that's the real story of what happened, you know, and then the mini ice age meant that they had a drought and they couldn't produce enough food to feed the population because they were so dependent on one species, you know, whereas if you have a multitude of species, like Aboriginal people ate 200 species of plants a year, and... Uh, and, and we have eight, mainly, eight staple crops. Of and grass or of plant? Uh, uh, plants, yeah. yeah. So, but grasses dominate all of our food around the world. You know, rice, wheat, barley feeding the animals and Oats, so on. corn. Corn, yeah. Bamboo. Yeah. So, you know... For the pandas. (laughs) (laughs) For the panda people. That's right, yeah. That's a random question. Sorry. When you said the grass family Poaceae and you said Graminaceae, why do we have two names? Is that because we we haven't all decided which one to choose? These are just names so that we can understand each other. Yeah, I understand how taxonomy works, but um, why is there two family names? Why can't we just pick one? Oh, in yeah. taxonomy, yeah. well, Linnaeus started it. It's his fault. Yeah, but like, and shouldn't so we just he, have one family name? Uh, so there, there was a move. So when Linnaeus uh, named plant families, uh, 
um, some of the families he named according to their reproductive system, like Labiate, the labiate flowers have little lips where the insects can land to pollinate, you know, so they're insect pollinated species. The Graminii produce grains, which are very special kinds of fruits with a, a thin layer of fruit over the outside of the seed. And so that's, you know, why we have to uh, take the husk off in order to eat the grain, the um, seed. Um, what else? Compositi, because the flower head is a composite of individual flowers. So, uh, yeah. And then in there was a move, yeah. the uh, New York Botanic Gardens decided, oh, we're going to get the... Um, International Botanic Congress to have a type genus for every family. So, uh, okay. uh, so Cruciferi, which is the cross-shaped flower, yep. uh, became Brassicaceae because Brassica uh, or broccoli became the type genus for that family. So they said, okay, we're going to change all the family names uh, to be consistent. Uh, and so all of okay. these people who worry about consistency and you know counting beans and stuff yeah. are really worried about that. But in South Australia and a lot of places in the world, we still go with Graminii instead of Poaceae. The right. type genus is Poa, yeah. but we keep Graminii out of respect for Linnaeus, for what he did for communication. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. I always wondered. Yeah. And so... Because um, there's two daisy fruit, like Compositae, you say the Compositae daisy family. They're also Aster- called Asteraceae. Asteraceae, yeah. it, it comes first in the alphabet, which is good, but it's... Uh, people don't understand that they're the same family yeah yeah so compositive because they're composite head of many tiny little flowers aster aster is the type genus the type genus the, okay yeah oh, that's and, interesting and you can use both and it's okay now okay. because the, <laughs> there is the there is a bible of plant names by david maberly have you seen this no oh it it helped me understand what's okay and what's not okay because everybody wants some authority to make a definite decision on what is the right word that we should use and yeah, people okay. get overwrought about names yeah they do and but it's it's any, our species it's characteristic are there any animal families that have two names because they've decided to have a type genus replace the original name as terry Terry's a taxonomist. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that question then. We'll, be, we'll interview Terry. Yeah. Yeah. That, was no, great. No. that was great plant talk. Can we talk about reptiles for a yeah. <laughs> Well, pythons. The python family and the boa family, but that's not because of that reason, because they're no. both genus. No. Uh, so what's Pythonidae and Pythonanae? Tribes. Know, kind of what you... Tri- f- tribes. Tribes and super genera super genus subgenus and stuff mm. anyway it's taxonomous talk mm. but i mean the difference between plant taxonomy and animal taxonomy is like different planets okay plant taxonomists have a certain way of thinking and being and i won't go into it here <laughs> that's fair enough <laughs> i've noticed with like birds and i'm just going off on a tangent now sorry about all this but when you look at like let's say like in australia we've got seven lizard families and one of them's the dragon family, and it's pretty diverse. When you can, you think of a frill neck, you think of like a, a water dragon, you think of a thorny devil, but then you've then you've got like in birds, you've got parrots, which you'd think would all be in the parrot family, but they're not. They're all in different families. So maybe some of these different taxonomists are a bit more splitty and a bit more lumpy than others. And <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, as <laughs> so it depends on the structure of the brain of the taxonomist. <laughs> if they're lumpers, <laughs> they do that. If they're splitters, they do the other. <laughs> He's not happy over there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, wait till he talks. So, um, yeah. so t- we will hear from Terry. Uh, next next episode, we'll be with Terry. But anyway. <laughs> um, You're not allowed to speak yet, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I feel if we carry on with that, he's going to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Bursting. Um, now, fire ecology, we've, we've spoken a little bit about it, and it's something that's extremely relevant, especially in the last you know, five, six years in Australia. We've lost so much of um, the country to fire. And we had Clive Chesson on the show, and he said something that he had heard, which always stuck with me. He said, fire ecology, it's not brain surgery. It's a lot more complicated. <laughs> okay. Mm. Yes, well, to carry on in the same vein, 
fire and grasses go together. You can't have one without the other. And uh, to understand how they go together is to be able to manage the ecosystem. So if you're going to be a grassland ecologist and get the soil back and do all these things to save the earth, you have to understand the fire. And the Aboriginal people cannot tell us their secrets. But uh, to understand something about this long-term knowledge of use of fire, I've got the latest book by Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe, who wrote together uh, Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And so I think uh, this is on the same track I'm on uh, to restore the carbon balance and to restore the atmosphere and humans to be connected to ecosystems. Uh, we have to know not only grasses, but how to use fire with the grasses. And grasses have very specific requirements. Uh, some grasses, so grasses are probably one of the largest families in the world. Some grasses hate fire. Some grasses are cool season species, and then they die off for the summer season. Then we have hot season uh, grasses, which love fire. They're stimulated by heat, not by rain. So, And we call the difference between the cool season and the hot season, the C3 and the C4 grasses, which a lot of people already know about because of the products of photosynthesis being three carbon or four carbon, the first step. And supposedly the four carbon grasses evolved in Australia 23 million years ago, according to the pollen record anyway. We seem to have a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, and Africa as well. And uh, so... Uh, but, we, you know, we don't know enough, really. So Aboriginal people have been burning. So Bruce Pascoe says 120,000 years. So uh, in my calculation, they would have been through two or three ice ages with warm periods in between. So the last ice age was about 20,000 uh, 20, years ago to... 12,500, something like that. Which doesn't mean that we're covered in ice. It just means we get really dry. Is that right? Yeah, it was dry, uh, yep. cool and drier yeah. than it is today. In Australia. And yeah. so um, the people through, uh, can you think of uh, 10,000 years of uh, knowledge passed down through your family, your father, your grandfather, to your father, to you, to your son, and so on and so on, mm. about you do this, you know, when that flower flowers, you go out and you sing this song and you light the fire. And that is how it was. So no one individual was totally responsible for the fire knowledge, but it was a clan thing. And the, the clan groups uh, were assigned to a particular vegetation type. And so they knew the fire for their type and the neighbors did not interfere. No one said, oh, you did that wrong, didn't you? you know, so there was this politeness about territory and respecting each other's uh, management of the territory. So but when they were thinking about fire, you say for the specific plant type in their, I guess their habitat region, are they thinking about what's going to be more productive for us for getting the food that we want to eat? Like, like are they trying to flush out game or are they trying to increase the amount of orchids to eat the bulbs or is it is do they does it change depending on what they want to try to achieve with the fire or is or do we even have any idea or wouldn't we love to know we would love to know the answer to that but that knowledge is secret it's sacred it's it's complicated and it's held within the families and so i can't speak for anyone who has traditional knowledge. But I have, I have an inkling from the papers I've read by indigenous scientists who say that uh, the, the big picture is that if everyone's doing their law or following their traditional requirements or duties, then the whole landscape is like a patchwork. And this is a healthy landscape. 
where there's different far ages. And so it, in the event of these wild uh, weather events that we have every 60 or so years, <clears throat> then the whole landscape isn't burnt up. Whereas we are now living in a time where uh, no one's burning off, no one's taking care of the vegetation, or no one's responsible for vegetation, it's just growing wildly. So that when we have the fire, as has happened three times since Europeans have been here, in the, and you can go back in the Adelaide Register and see these great waves of fire that just went from the Air Peninsula across the York Peninsula through the Adelaide Hills and wiped everything out. It could happen again. We don't know. It's a particular wind that made it happen. It's an event. And so to, uh, what do you call it, to plan against uh, some unforeseen disaster like that, uh, you know, if you've got your, if, if you're in control of your ecosystem, then the fire is not going to wipe everything out. Plus, the being responsible for your land and your plants there, uh, it feeds you as well. You know, so it's it's probably uh, many levels. So th your question is is a good one. It's probably doing all of those things. You know, it's like encouraging the orchids, and then you've got orchid bulbs. And uh, Beth Gott wrote about that in Curry Plants, Curry People. They were growing, using fire. The women were cultivating the soil and using fire, uh, and they grew orchid bulbs like potatoes, like we have potatoes today. They ate orchid hmm. bulbs. It's hard to imagine, Tubers. isn't it? Yeah, because orchids are just so few and far between now, aren't they? Um, but with fire, mm. uh, you, can, you can actually stimulate them and you give them nutrients. It's returning nutrients to the soil, you know, so... In a scientific way, yeah, there's probably an explanation to the, for these things somewhere, but it's like a, a big picture thing that you've got to manage the whole ecosystem and then you have all these 200 species in a year that they ate. Hmm. And I, I don't know how, if we could get back to that. In fact, I don't think we can get back to that. So I think the bushland was shaped by summer fires because that's when it's hot and that's when fires would have happened mostly before humans got here. Do you think? Because it wouldn't have burnt in winter. That is an argument a lot of people say, oh, yeah, well, the people just had influence over the last 10,000 years, you know, since the last Ice Age. Well, I'm thinking people had influence ever since they arrived. Yeah, yeah, well, anyway, other people argue that, oh, no, the, the, uh, the, fire, uh, the fire frequency in, um, you know, since the breakup of Gondwana has uh, been the same regardless um, so doesn't, that doesn't seem human. right, does it? Well, yeah, so people argue that Aboriginal knowledge is not important, but it, to me, it's where we are today. We can't ignore uh, the way plants have evolved with humans mm. on the earth because, you know, unless we're going to go back to some primitive state... Um, yeah, we're we're here in this ecosystem we've got, and yeah. there there are the ghosts of the people who've created the landscape the way it is, and it required the care and love of the land. You know that that they identified with the land, and any damage to the land was a damage to them. You know, to their souls, because their totems and their family belief system came from the animals, you know, like if you had the, uh, the goanna as your, your totem, you would not eat it, mm. and you would stop anyone who's trying to damage a goanna, and you would then be responsible for the habitat, you know, mm. the grasslands, you know. So, you know, the ochre warriors, Robin Coles, and did you ever interview him? Oh, he's just a god, he's passed away, but he wrote the ochre warriors. Here, the Paramount people were the fire people. And they were the lizard men, and they were the gatekeepers to keep apart the warring tribes from the Kurong and the Ghana people, you know. And up, it, you go to Mount Barker on the freeway, and there's a pullover there, truck stop, and uh, it says uh, Paramank in the, you know, 
the metal sign yeah. with flames underneath, yeah. you know. And so they're the people that knew fire, you know. And yeah. so, and Robin Coles said in the Ochre Warriors that, you know, they had all of the, the secrets of fire being the, uh, the pyrites from Brukunga Mine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pyrites. Uh, they got fl- uh, flint from uh, the Nullarbor. They got ochre from the Flinders. And so, uh, and they had uh, these shelf fungus. So all of the elements were necessary. And so the, the secret knowledge of how to use fire was kept by the paramank. Is that fungus that the one that they would just keep like a, a small fire in and they could carry fire around somewhat? It was their economy. So because okay. on the Adelaide Plains, the Ghana would lose the skin on their hands trying to rub the stick and get a fire going, you know. But the paramount were smart. They just struck the flint and the pyrites. And because they had the grasslands, the lizards, so they were the lizard men painting themselves red ochre. And if anyone did not do the proper introduction coming across their land... They could start a fire instantly, wipe them out. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want to cross the paramount. They were wow. supposedly quite fiery. There's none. There's no paramount people really left anymore, is there? Is there one or oh, two? Yeah. Or there yeah. are. I are mean, there? a lot of people would like to think that there's nobody left, but yeah, there are people. I don't know. Yeah. There are people. So and is, the, is this paramount land here? Because yeah. then I heard that this now swapped over to Ghana and the borders changed recently. Um, I only learnt that because one of the schools that I visit said we they'll say Ninamani, welcome to Ghana country. I'm like, aren't we paramount? And they said no, the borders have recently been realigned. I don't know how they even do that, but either way. If you read Louise Herkus, she said there was respectful distance between these major groups. Mm. So on the Kurong, you had the Nadanjeri, Ramanjeri, and then the uh, Mount Barker area up to Springton, I think it was, was Paramank, the ridge. Okay. Uh, going up there. And then the Ghana were like the foothills and the plains. And the vegetation's different in each place. It's so diverse. That's why I love this place. I walk through it and I think this is the same plants that grew when the indigenous people walked through here to when Thylakaleo roamed through here, you know. It's, it's, it's got that spirit that I very... I don't capture like you do, and I, I don't know. I don't know how to. Maybe I need to take psychedelics. I need to learn more about mushrooms. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, this is what Merlin Sheldrake does. And, uh, and he talks about uh, people getting insight and changing their lives through mushrooms, yeah. through fungus. Uh, and I, I didn't know this at the time, but I lived in Guatemala in the Peace Corps, and, and he's telling me about the, the native people there would get together one day a week uh, with a plate of mushrooms, you know, and they'd come in, you know, after the end of the week with their questions. Oh, I've got a question for the mushroom spirit. And so they would sit around a table, they had a big plate of mushrooms, and they'd eat the mushrooms and they'd get the answer to their questions. They'd go home, have another week. <laughs> you hear the same things out of the Amazon with the um, ayahuasca yeah, ceremonies. Have you ever heard of pachuri? It's um, Dubusia hopwoodii. It's an indigenous plant. It's in the tomato family, and it grows, uh, it grows on the sand ridges uh, out in the drier country. And, yeah, I know about it. Yeah, Dion mm-hmm. bought some back for us from uh, near Broken Hill. Um, <laughs> Dion Grantham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, shout I out. told him, I told him, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, but so I've, I've read got, about no, it. It's our secret. It's, um, yeah, yeah, I've, I've read about it. You mix it with an acacia um, uh, bark, uh, the, no, the, the, ash. The, the ash, sorry, yeah, which, which we Kempiana. did. Um, Witchity. Um, is that what it was? Okay. Witchity bush, yeah. And, but when you read about it, like... People have written about indigenous tribes that they're, like you said before, they're not supposed to cross each other's boundaries without the respectful um, intention. But if you had paturi, it was fine. It's like, come on in, and they'd, they'd sit around, they'd, and it was described that they would like, uh, like, like almost like a drunken state. They'd be like, that was how that was how a white person described it. But they were sitting around getting, uh, I can't remember the word. but We do yeah. that in the King's Head now. 
The King's, is that a pub? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but isn't that funny? Like, you know, you can't come here. We're not, you know, we're warring tribes, but you've got Pituri, okay, and you get, and we're mates now. You know, we're all one. Great. Good times. Well, it's because the plants love us and want us to be happy. And if you get people obeying plants, we'd have a better world. Yes, Steve. Plants. If you get people obeying plants, I think you'd lock them up. I think there'd be a law made against them. <laughs> Too many people walking around going, I agree. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you'd be walking on the soil surfacing. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting way of um, connecting with the environment, though, through, I don't know, communicating with plants. But um, Carl is a Ghana person. Carl. Telford. Telfer, yeah, because there's a good car and a bad car. It's a good car. He's the good car. Known him for a long time. He, he played footy with my brother. I see him around um, a lot in, you know, just for, through the work I do. Lovely bloke. And he would get young fellas from country and he would take them out to the bush and he would, and he would say to them things like, you know, we're going to make a spear and we're going to get this, this stick, this branch from this tree, but we're going to ask permission from the tree. And, we, and, and just, just by doing that, it, it creates that connection. Yeah. And when you think of, like, you talked about the, the messages passed down through thousands of years, you, know, you just think how deep that goes and that knowledge goes. I mean, it's, you can't... I mean, you think of, like, how we've gone from riding a horse to landing on the moon in, like, a three or four generations. You just think, well, what, how deep does that go, that connection? And it's a wonderful thing to, to, to think boom about. Boom and bust, boom and bust. Yeah, but the, it's like the water ceremony... In South Australia, we should be doing water ceremonies like I take this glass of water and I say, oh, thank you, water. I will. Well, we just don't have any careful. respect for anything. We just turn the tap on. You know, we just sit, we just sit around complaining because, I don't know, it's hot or something, you know. <laughs> and we waste. So long-term profit, short-term investment for long-term profit for the kids. So paint yourself red with red ochre. And go light a grassland. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> and if you do you light that, up a room, Jane. <laughs> so, so if you do that, you will have your lizards. Because we're lizards getting rid of the lizards need grasslands. Yeah, I mean, when I was, I used to work with John Wamsley um, on his property many years ago. This is not Warrawong, but just his own. You know, he restored a like a cottage garden into bushland um, and he was talking about the bush needs an event and oh. traditionally it was like fire mm-hmm. um, but he goes through with his lawnmower and he goes through and takes out a lot of the shrubs and he calls things like you know tea trees and acacias native woody weeds and he doesn't try to eradicate all the tea trees and the acacias but he opens it up and now he's got this massive diversity of understory ankle yeah. high species and and mowing is like being the megafauna eating up things it's it creates spaces it diversifies the landscape you know is that why people want to put rhinos back in australia have you heard i keep having people mention that to me so put the rhinos megafauna. here because we can't yeah. bring back the protodon yeah. uh-huh. is that is that got any legs on it that that theory the rhinos have yeah they got four legs. They got four is it <laughs> write that down it's, <laughs> it's, it's for the same reason we don't denounce anyone for planting a tree because they're making an effort. Any, yeah, anything. Yeah. However, yeah. The, the critical thing about fire and fire knowledge is that the fire can only be lit by the custodian of the animal and the plant that are holding the fire. That much I know. What does that mean? Yeah. It's, is- it's cultural knowledge is required to know so that it's not one person making a decision about, oh, I can see that the, there's three tons per hectare here of grasses and so many tons per hectare of shrubs and trees and la, la, la. And, and we, can, we can do the computer, uh, the computer model, modeling about fuel and about weather, but really understanding how to use fire is beyond one individual and this is so if you're looking at whole ecosystem management it requires intergenerational knowledge and so that it's not you making a decision it's like all of your ancestors speaking through you but more than that uh, what I've 
glean from talking to people about or who's got the knowledge and the custodian person has a certain animal, a certain plant, and a certain wind. And all of those three things are required to, in, in order to be able to light the fire, to do the fire stick farming. So it's deep and complicated knowledge. It's like ecosystem science. It's not like mm. experiment. Oh, let's just try a fire and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Because no one person can understand it. It's intergenerational knowledge for the last ten thousand years, anyway, twelve thousand years since the ice age. Mm. Okay. Because um, I think like the CFS now, they burn in the cooler months so that we don't burn infrastructure, whereas nature probably burnt in the warmer months. Not the indigenous eh. people, but. No, but, but, whatever you, whatever you say about mm -hmm. fire, there's an exception. I bet you. And so I there, bet you there, is. there was a fire at every season of the year. This is why people did not interfere with one family's fire custodianship, mm -hmm. because that was in their vegetation type. And the people next door in another vegetation type can't really know. So what's there's always going to be winners and losers in fire, but. When you talk about the mosaic burning, I guess then it's kind of like, okay, this is we're going to burn this for the betterment of whatever we're trying to achieve. But this, these other species are being productive at this time. Too bad for them, which is okay because mosaic burning says that over there they can do it over there. Yeah, and you is get that what we you get really of? schizophrenic thinking that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's complicated, you know, and and. There are computer models everywhere. There's life cycle. Uh, you, you list the life cycles of all of the species in your plot on your on your property. Say, you could say, okay, well this this species needs a fire every three years. That one needs five to ten years. They need thirty to sixty years. That one will just be wiped out. Uh, yeah, and so it's it's, it's a lot to comprehend if one person is making a decision to light a match. So thinking forward now, Indigenous people did it for... Well, obviously, the country was very different then, and they did it for food production. We're now conservationists. We're not going to be going out eating orchids, likely. So we want to try to burn the bushland well, in a way that's going to increase or protect biodiversity. Would that be fair to say? Oh, yeah. Biodiversity is a good thing to aim for because we don't know anything else. Yeah. But... If you had the lizard as your totem, you would want to uh, make uh, build lizard habitat. You'd want the knowledge, and you can't think of it yourself. You know, you've got to get help from your clan, and it's responsibility. Yeah. It's responsibility. Yeah. It's not you making a decision. It's your responsibility because it was handed to you in a secret ceremony, and then. Say on the Torrance River, where I am, supposedly the uh, Rakali, the river rat, comes out of the river uh, on the right morning and he lifts his head up from eating the Kwandong and smoke comes out of his mouth. You know, it's condensation. And that's a signal. Oh, and then you take the Kwandong seed and put it in the fire, and that's your fire stick. You know, and so it's a story. Mm -hmm. You inherit a story if it is your right, it's your responsibility. And but so, that story tells you the time of the year. It speaks something about climate. It's oh, it's everything. It's like ecosystem management. It's complicated. Mm. <laughs> you know, so to know how to to know how to burn grasslands, I can't even tell you except. Uh, I, I, I know the story of uh, the Ghana Plains, of the kangaroo grass. If you don't burn it every three years, it dies. Okay, that's, um, that's, that's straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. And that's why we don't have it. We don't have it. You just can't have it unless you... Because the thatch builds up. So it's a perennial C4 grass, hot season, stimulated by heat. You know, you have a fire... It germinates, and then you've got uh, three years to get a crop of seed off of it, and it makes wonderful damper. It tastes very nutty, and it's got four times more protein than any of our wheat or 
any other grinds. And uh, and then second year you get a, you get new green growth. Uh, third year uh, you get just a few slivers of green, and all of that dead thatch from the previous three years has built up to where it's choked. And then you won't get any new growth unless you burn it. If you burn it, then fresh new green shoots come out of the crown, which is insulated in the soil. Can that be simulated with a whippersnipper? Well, I was just, I mean, you, you, you kind of say that, but I was just thinking, like, if we were to do all these things we're saying about fire ecology and do that now, like, how would... Because you're right, Aboriginal people knew what they were doing and it was great and they've got all this knowledge that we can't find out, but they looked after their land really well. If us, as an overcrowded place now, started burning everything around us, we're all going to get lung cancer and and the environment's probably not in the fittest state to cope with all of that smoke and, and everything. Um, so it's kind of like we're talking a lot about fires is how we can get the bush right, but then it's quite obvious as well that there's big detrimental issues to all of a sudden burning all of our bushland yeah, for yeah, us as right. humans. That's um, right. You can't, you can't do it without this collective knowledge from thousands of years and the ownership or the But from thousands of years ago is so much different to now, to overpopulated, an overpopulated planet. You can't even use that now can we or we need to put into the into the picture that now we are overpopulated and if we burn this around here to do the right thing which would be the right thing for the animals for for the goannas for the lizards for for all of those things but you can't do it in isolation so read merlin sheldrake from cambridge university on how fungi can save the world six ways paul stamets ted talks how fungi can save the world, you know, because maybe it's fungi that are actually controlling the grasslands and the forests. And not use but fire. It's weeds, what you're saying is, also, we, the, the environment now is full of weeds which burn differently than what Aboriginal people... It's a completely pack. different, well, it's a a completely too, different yeah. thing that we're burning to... Yeah thousands of years ago or, or hundreds of years hundreds of years ago we yeah. have all those introduced um, c3 grasses too and i guess yeah so do we need as we move forward all cultures and races moving forward and i guess that's what we're doing isn't it? it's what conversations like this is so important you know we we need to recreate these stories and and see what works and what doesn't work and what are we trying to achieve and in the absence of knowing, we go for biodiversity. That's what E.O. Wilson did for us. He gave us this word, and so we've got a goal. You know? <laughs> That's and my so, goal. So, so getting soil organic matter back is number one. And how do we do that? Oh, yeah. So we get nutrients turning over. We get ecosystem functioning. And then we can build up the soil. Otherwise, we're sunk. You know? We have nothing. No medium. We get a desert. Yeah, that's a lot of planning, isn't it? To still feed all of us billions and try and replenish our soil, it's, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Which it, is what we, that's why we need to start and get going on it. And, well, we have started, but yeah. And, and I think the only way is to tell the young people, hey, you can get high on the soil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make it a happy thing. Yeah. Really? It's, yeah. it's, it's not yeah. so. Comes out yeah. the soil, we all get high yeah. on. Start selling. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so have people go out in little groups, you know, and adopting a piece of land. You know, how fundamental is that to yeah. our species? You know, adopt a piece of land and get something happening on it. You know, and everybody has a role to play, and then you put it all together as ecosystem people, and then you get the happy stuff back. I, I um. I always talk really airy-fairy sometimes in the show about thinking into the future, 50, 100 years into the future, about how we could be living. And I always think it'd be great if we were born into an area that we lived in at no cost. We just live there and we can just produce, you know, we can hunt from the bushland nearby, we can um, farm, you know, like permaculture farming practices, but we still you know, have space travel on aeroplanes and telephones. And we will have to contribute, you know, with rubbish, waste removal and all the things that we will probably still have. Um, and that way, if we do go to cities and we don't make it, we don't just end up living on the street. We come back to this, this homeland where our family is and we can just 
know that we can eat and be in the soil. And I think that would just be so much better for mental health because I think a lot of people that are out there at the moment struggling to find a house to rent, let alone be able to buy uh, as we get more and more people and all the things, um, it's kind of like if you're trying to raise kids, caring about the soil is like way down the list. I mean, I think it being number 15 in the United Nations to some single mum with 20 kids is probably... It Food probably on doesn't the even, table, yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. And they work for $1.50 an hour at mm. seven jobs, mothers in mm. New York. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, right, mm. okay, that's, that's horrible. Um, so they probably don't even get to see soil, some of these people, you know. Um, like we think of Indigenous kids in the middle of Australia being able to see the sky... And they, they're jealous because we get to see the beach. There are probably people that don't get to go out where there's soil. In China and in, in Beijing, the children have never seen the sky. Mm. Yeah. Have well, they got a neck problem then? Is that. Is that <laughs> 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 I'll, I'll, we'll take that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, to, to wrap it up, I guess. Um, We're screwed. The kids are... <laughs> <laughs> and no, thanks for listening. <laughs> we've got kids who are going to carry on somehow. And it's and that amazing education that we put into those kids that will they will make a difference. They're doing it already. Absolutely, yeah. And, and they're all looking for fun. They're all looking for the good life. And... Your aspiration sounds like how you're living. You're already doing it. You're living the future 50 years from now. Be good. You're here. Look at this place. It's wonderful. And you're inspired by your surroundings. And we need to get kids out here to see this and see what it feels like to live in this kind of world. That's the goal. Um, Hats off. Hats off to you. What you're doing is great. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to go for a bit of a walk around and you can tell me some stuff about some of the plants here. Um, and then we're going to interview your partner, Terry. <laughs> um, and that will be the next episode that comes out, folks. So Terry Ridden, bat expert. Um, thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. Yeah. Great, Steve and Adrian. It's been wonderful. And guys, thank you for listening.